Welcome to The Owl Hoot, a podcast for the environmentally curious, with me, Caroline Norbury. On each episode, I chat with a guest who contributes in some way to protecting the planet on matters of climate change, sustainability, biodiversity and pollution. Here is a place where you can gain new knowledge and be inspired. Enjoy listening. On the podcast today, I am fortunate to be once again in the company of John Grant. John was my guest on the first episode, where we discussed sustainable homes and buildings. He works as a senior lecturer in sustainable construction and climate change at Sheffield Hallam University. Today, though, we are going to be chatting about activism. John is a member of Extinction Rebellion, and I am keen to share John's perspective on what it means to be an activist, his experience of activism, and the role it plays in climate action. So without further ado, welcome John again to the podcast. I can't believe you've invited me again, but now you're going to have to put up with me. Thank you very much for, for, for giving me the opportunity to talk about something so important in my heart. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, it is, it's an interesting topic. And uh, yeah, so let's get into it. I, I thought the first thing I might ask you is, when you when we say the word activism, what, what does it mean to you, activism? What, what are we talking about? It's a, it's a complicated one, isn't it? Because so sort of 2012, I remember dragging my two quite young children, one four-year-old, one eight-year-old, around a march with a with a big banner saying, save the planet, save the planet for my kids, and my kids saying, I want a planet to grow up. And I walked them around London. Oh, they didn't, they didn't appreciate that. And we finished outside as close as possible to number 10. And we yelled and screamed and banged on drums. And that was 2012. And we all thought we'd kind of done our bit. And, you know, when I look back on it, I just sort of thought it made me feel good. But it didn't actually do anything. And it was a great sort of badge of honour to say I was on the march and there was a few hundred thousand of us and we stopped all traffic in London. But barring stopping all the traffic in London, we didn't. And, and when I looked back on it, I was, yeah, really uncomfortable with that. I, I, I realised I was becoming an activist for my own psychological improvement. I felt like I wasn't doing enough, but going out on a march, that made me feel better. But when I kind of looked at the, the changes that had occurred, I couldn't see anything. I just listened to the same honeyed words of my politicians and nothing seemed to change. Carbon dioxide continued increasing in the atmosphere. All my research said that extreme weather events are happening more often. The world was warmer. Um, people were suffering. Animals were becoming extinct. Everything. And, and honestly, I, about four years ago, just around when Extinction Rebellion was created, I gave up. I stopped all the activism. I, I designed a, a zero carbon house, which I talked about in the first podcast, bit of linkage there. Nice. And the plan was I was going to sell everything I owned, build that house, which was autonomous, so you didn't need a great deal to live there, live there and just hold my family around me and fundamentally just watch the world burn. And, and I was really a hair's breadth away from doing that or maybe becoming an alcoholic. I wasn't sure it was an option, A or B, which should it be? And then Extinction Rebellion came 
and I watched them close down London with their yoga parties and their juggling and their samba bands and, and all of this craziness on the bridges around London. And then listen to a politician actually say, we hear you, we hear you, you can stop now. They actually sort of like Indian bird style went, called uncle and went, please stop now. And I went, oh, there's another kind of activism. And, and I joined XR. And XR has sort of led me as much as I've sort of been involved in that. So, yeah. That is, is, that is so interesting that you quite quickly talked about doing it for yourself uh, in a personal way uh, initially. Yeah. How long did it take you then to realise because I, I imagine during that first 2012 protest, it felt very invigorating. At what point down the track did you reflect? How long did it take before you thought, oh, hang on a minute, that, that was great, but what's happened? Well, I'd been doing it for a number of years before that. Oh. That was enough for me. So I started in 1990 doing all of this kind of stuff. And, and, and during that process, I kind of got married and had children and, then, and, and it was then, it's their fault my children's fault when I sort of after 2012 I told you they were quite young four and eight and then I looked at them and I realized that it wasn't doing anything for their future it was just for me in the here and now my activism wasn't doing what it should do which is changing the future and it was just it was just ineffectual other than just making me feel good and, and when it comes to climate change that isn't good enough when it comes to women's rights the rights of, 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 of non-ethnic people and everything. This is contentious, but honestly, it doesn't matter insofar as if we succeed and when we succeed, if it's in 20 years, 40 years, 100 years, or next year, which is the ideal, but honestly, it doesn't matter which one of those, what trumps those is the fact that we are in the middle of an extinction level event. And that is accelerating. And that became clear after 2012, when the data came out that we'd lost 75% of our flying insects in Europe. And that a million species were under threat of extinction. That, that, you know, that, that, that climate change became an indicator of a much more important ecological collapse. And, and, and more the point, I knew how to fix it and nobody was listening to me and and it wasn't about and fixing it wasn't about walking on the street with a banner yeah i understand it sounds like um the, the the word at the moment that we we uh, encountered in a book club last week was doomism wasn't it you, you sounded like for a moment there you were on the edge of this is this is all going to be horrid and there's nothing i can do but from the brink of that came back and thought, no, uh, I can be part of something that makes a difference. Well, non-violent direct action was something that I was, other than watching um, the amazing men and women in the suffragette movement, and then later on in the black rights movement in the US. And I suppose from my family background coming from India, um, looking at Gandhi's non-violent direct action. I, I did have some of that sort of behind me. And, and I have to say my own inadequacies, I was so busy being an academic, I never thought about the fact that I might be involved in non-violent direct action, but it would be definitely, it would be somebody else. It'd be some kind of weird 
tree-hugging, yogurt-weaving, beard-wearing, jumper-wearing person that would do that direct action without a job, without, you know, I, I don't know if people here remember Swampy back in the day, tying himself to the top of a tree to stop a, a road from being built. You know, it was weird people like that. That, that do nonviolent direct action. And it, was, it wasn't an academic who had never been arrested before in his entire life. And, you know, grew up in, you know, respecting the police and knowing that they have a really, you know, I, I've always told my children, you know, if you're lost, if you need help, it's always been a positive experience. And then watching that and the, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's a very different mindset when I heard their mindset is that everybody needs to get involved with this. And actually somebody like me potentially has more power because we have credibility as a scientist in this climate change thing. And so I actually joined the scientists for Extinction Rebellion as well as just the Extinction Rebellion. So then I was surrounded by scientists, published scientists, scientists who work for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, scientists who were way above my pay grade professors and, and and I was just sort of there in the background as a very loud mouth frog singing away and supporting them but you know to be to be even listed with one of those and it's kind of weird in that it is my picture on the Ex scientists for extinction rebellion from my first direct action that I did that is on their website me holding our declaration so I can't deny that I'm part of Extinction Rebellion and scientists. They, they put my bloody picture up there. So, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Excellent. Notoriety. <laughs> so what was it? You, you mentioned there that you didn't think you were that person. What was the moment that made you think, right, I am going to become that person, be that activist? Well, it was, it was the fact that it seemed to make a difference, that the, the men and women who were leading up on this, I quite like following people. I know that, I know I shouldn't, Maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I like to assess what people's skills, responsibility, um, mantra, their, their ideology, test it to the bleeding edge. And once I've done that, if I'm happy to follow that person, I trust them, and then I'm happy to throw my weight in. I stop arguing at that point and, and become a good drone and follow that. And I will admit that. People can judge me for it. But, you know, I think if you argue for too long, all you end up doing is it, it becomes a... This, I've been in environmental groups where this happens, where everyone's saying, no, it's saving the whales. No, it's stopping fox hunting. No, it's veganism. No, And this, this argument just goes round and round and round. And, and they're all wonderful, beautiful people, but their own agenda of activism, it just made me really uncomfortable. And I would... I, I have backed away from those but it was different with extinction rebellion in that they just had these three rules there was just three things just tell the truth change to zero carbon by 2025 and put people in charge of the political system that's it that's all we're asking we are a fire alarm was the line we are not the scientists who are going to outline how we change this we are the smoke alarm, the fire alarm to this emergency. And that's what was different. We were working to a very narrow thing, which is to get people aware and active. And that's still, that's still the agenda. So it sounds then, if there's a very clear, pretty straightforward message, 
that you've got you can get everyone behind then you've got more impetus and likely to generate more impact i'm guessing i think so i think that's what people now in this 21st century people are looking for the soundbite aren't they with everything we've been engineered uh, to to have such a short attention span the idea of me asking people to read the latest 300 page document published by the ipcc that says you know what we have to do and that we've only got until 2030 to cut our carbon emissions by 40 percent have a 50 50 chance of a cascade event of changing climate oh right, my goodness your listeners have already i hope they haven't drifted away but that was close right we need to stop doing that it is about the story it is about the narrative we have to engage people with a story i wish it was about science because then i'd win because my science is undeniable and you know real and provable but people don't want to hear that what we have to do and that story is those in this case those three agendas the those three demands as, as they call it and a willingness to accept that i can be angry all the time which i am even though i'm kind of a smiley guy deep down it's like a furnace door that's shut inside me and all it takes is somebody to lift the latch you don't even have to open it and then the door just bursts open and all this rage and fire comes out and limited only by my uncomfortableness with violence you know that i won't impart violence but you know if, if my children are under threat or you know you know how it works everybody has the capability to that and you know i'm, I'm sadly i'm never going to say never because if you threaten everything i love then you know, there are occasions, but there are better ways. That's the cool thing about Extinction Rebellion. There are better ways than being violent. As far as I'm aware, in all the tens of thousands of events on those, there has never been a, an occasion where uh, violence has been incited by people um, following exile. I've seen people punched, hit, kicked, spat on, all of these things on the line, but never from our side, sadly. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I, I'm sensing that actually the fire that you talk about in your belly that keeps you angry is your way of driving action and keeping you on it. Is, is that right? Am, am I hearing that correctly? If you didn't have that fire, what, what, would, what would you look like? <laughs> well, I'd, be a, I'd like to think still quite a good lecturer, teaching people about fuel poverty, and making things better and energy efficiency and the fact that our ecology is really important and renewable energy can provide energy cheaply and, and protect vulnerable people. So there isn't a great deal of difference. There's this great picture that I think gets used a lot where somebody's standing up in an auditorium and, and there's all this list of improvements that people are fighting for. And he says, what if climate change is a, is a fake and we've improved the world for nothing? You know, and, and it's like, oh, that's just just everything, you know. So the idea of improving the world, of helping the vulnerable, of, of education, healthcare, you know, all of these great things, that would be what I would be doing. But what would be missing would be this 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 urgency, this emergency that that is is been building since I started in this in 1990 as an undergraduate, where it became, in my mind, obvious that the science was clear 
and that we were changing the climate and nothing good was going to happen out of it. There might have been the odd positive element to it, but overall the negatives would far outweigh the positives and we needed to do something. But what we've managed to do over the last 30 years is just look at the science and make sure that the science is absolutely accurate and real. And we've done that and that's great. And I'm really pleased for all of those scientists that have done that. But men and women like me who have actually been working on how do we solve this? How do we step back from the precipice rather than proving that we're at the edge of the precipice, which is the science, um, we've not been listened to at all. Or in my office, people like conceptually come up to me and sort of pat me on the head and go, no, oh, John, you're just so lovely. Your, your talk about freedom and free energy and helping vulnerable people, you do realize it's just a fantasy. It's just kind of a, a beautiful dream. And, and, and actually my retort is, is that your, your dream that we can continue growing our economy infinitely on a finite planet, that's the glorious dream. My version is, is real life that has bad things and good things, but ultimately people are protected and, and have a better way of life. And I think that's better than we're gonna grow so much with me, everybody's gonna be a millionaire. And is that, does it, am I the only one that thinks, that's just ridiculous, maybe. I don't you're know. not the only one. It's, it's, <laughs> you're definitely not the only one. And I'm sure those people that you shared that experience of when you're protesting uh, have a similar sort of vision. Getting back to that, actually on the ground doing a protest, what mm. is that like? Is it organised? Is it chaotic? What does it feel like? Oh, well, Extinction Rebellion are, are quite an organised group, which is one of the reasons why I stick with them. So before the event, we are all split into, into groups of, of similar thinking individuals. So we accept that everyone is unique and individual, but many of us have common ideals. So with me, I was drawn to the scientists for Extinction Rebellion. There were other anti-war people. There were other organizations, but just made up of grandmas, just, just grandmas. And, and, you know, and so these groups sort of coalesced initially quite informally but then formally you became a group that you put yourself out there and other people joined you and we joined joined and, and then we talked about what what drives us how we would sort of deliver our message communicate our message from our point of view and that was all done before any kind of event which was all kept under secret we didn't know what the time was what the date was anything like that but the organization was done but it's done in a cell kind of way so we knew something was coming but we were, were sort of protect uh, we were organizing ourselves ready for that so as scientists we said right well we need a table we need some projection equipment we need electric we need a whiteboard we definitely need that and we need white coats so everybody had to get white coats and write extinction rebellion on the white back of our white coats and we need a big gazebo that we can go into so people can come in and talk to us and we're going to be really really comfortable to talk to and all of that was done and then we all got trained on um, what to do if things got a bit hairy with police action, because we were gonna be a bit naughty. And so what? how would we respond? And we, we went through quite a bit of non-violent direct action training. So that was done as well. I don't think I'm giving anything away. And it was the whole point of that was so that we don't do anything stupid. We don't push back. This is non-violent, this is passive. And, and it was explained to us the strength and the power of passive action. And then people were put forward in as terms of volunteers that if it came to it, they were willing to be arrested. 
for our for our goals. But but what goes along with that is about five or ten other people that support that person. So if you were a, an arrestable, then you also made contact with people who would take your details, who would know who you who needed to be contacted, and who would support you, who would be there for you after you were released, and all of these. So all of that infrastructure was put in place, and then the date was given, and everybody sort of piles in. We've all got our, our, our WhatsApp groups that are kind of ready to communicate. We all arrange to meet wherever we're going to meet. And then informally, things were, things happened where, you know, the scientists set up in, in my biggest direct action was we set up in, in the centre of Trafalgar Square with our gazebo and everything at our table and all of our scientists. We, we had an earth scientist, we had a social scientist, we had a construction, we had a climate scientist. We, depending on the questions that came in, we were ready to do that. We had a whole presentation strategy and then we, that was our bit. The grannies, they went to the most well-known granny in, in the UK. They went straight to Buckingham Palace. And they were straight in front of Buckingham Palace saying, grannies unite, we need to fight for, for climate change. And please, um, uh, our glorious queen, please come down and support us being a really positive, motivated granny too. And it's really uncomfortable for the media when it's like, damn, what, eh? You know, and each of these groups had their own sort of nuanced way of kind of communicating their way. And we, we sort of planned and thought, oh, Shell or BP fund the Science Museum. I think we need to do it. Uh, uh, we need to out. We need to do some outreach. And so there was plans afoot for us to go to the Science Museum and and ask to speak to a scientist who thought that it might be appropriate for an oil company to sponsor the climate change display in the Science Museum. And so so we did. We we planned to do that. It's not. The most terrifying thing and, and we sort of turned up in our white coats with crazy wigs on some of them and big glasses and really joking thing and we and there's, a, there's always a queue outside of, of of the science museum and we just walked up and down the thingy giving them lectures uh, you know mine was was the history of science 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 and climate change in this one that's so i would like to start with you know, in the 17th century, Jean-Baptiste Fourier came, and I just sort of started with that, and then went on to Unisport, and then John Tyndale, and, and so it was all sort of science-based. And, and, and then, then some of our crew called out uh, to the Science Museum and said, can you please send a scientist out to discuss uh, our position and your position in terms of your funding? And they, of course, called the police on us because they found us threatening at that point. And that was the funniest bit of the direct action that I've been involved with because two trucks full of young men and women in body armor and all sorts of scary stuff came piling down the road with blues and twos going, screech, I mean literally screech to a hole. And they all came hammering out of that, ready for thinking. And you saw their shoulders drop when there was a group of 35 to 60 year olds in white coats going, oh, Welcome, are you here for the lecture on climate change? And they're like, but they're just old people, you know? And it was like, and so we said, and then they were like, no, you can't block the road. I said, we're not blocking anything. And then, and then there was this whole debate and I started lecturing them on the history of climate change. And they were like, mate, hand in my face going, we're not interested in that. I'm like, you know, I teach to students who are asleep all the time. I don't care, you're awake. So you're getting my lecture and, you know, and it was all, it was kind of fun, but, but it sort of made a point. But it did, again, made you feel right. But there were a lot of people in the queue there who were a little 
uncomfortable, but also kind of weirded out when our credentials were delivered to them. And they realized, what's well, so you're a real scientist. And it's like, yeah, check, check out my website in, you know, Sheffield Hallam University or check out my website in Bristol or check out my, my, my papers. Here's a list of the published papers on this kind of thing. And people were like, well, hang on a minute. Why aren't you inside the Science Museum? Like, well, they won't let us in, you know. And it's like, but why? And of course, that's the question. So it began. And yeah, so that was, yeah, that was, that was my experiences there. That's, um, no, 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 not at all. It, it gives you a real flavour, a feel for what that experience is, is like. And so that's really important for anyone that's thinking, yeah, I could, I could be part of this. But I wondered whether we should pick up on those two different types of people in that story in that you had the public. So getting the public on board is something really useful and important and getting that getting a, the message you want out rather than the message they might hear from media and the police getting them in a on board if you like so that they res, you can respect each other how do, how did those two getting those two groups of people on board how does that work and does it work well it was it was a challenge i can't deny that the people were much easier that's john here i i don't i'm, I'm a bit of a a performer. I'm, I'm often wondered whether I'd be more comfortable as a stand-up comic rather than a, an as, as a scientist. So, you know, there's me standing by a, a, a banner, a big banner where we block the road off and there's loads of people sort of coming up and wondering what the heck is forcing them to take a, maybe a 300, 500 foot detour around the giant pink boat that's in the centre of Thing. And, and, and I, me being that kind of person, I'd be like, so why, why do you think there's a group of old people here who actually turn out to be scientists are willing to risk arrest and sort of go in and then give them this introduction and actually our banner had what these, I don't know if you've seen this, people may have seen it, they're called the climate stripes and it shows in vertical stripes um, the average temperature of the world from 1850 to, to around 2000. And it sort of starts with lots of blue stripes, and then you get the odd red stripe, and then blue and red, and then right at the end, closest to the current days, it's just all red. In fact, it all, almost goes to black. The red is so dark red. And as we all know, the last seven years have been the warmest seven years ever recorded in our in our uh, climate. And then this sort of thing is what I explained to them. People were like, is that right? And it's like, don't believe me just go on to the United Nations website. I'm not some nutter in my mum's basement saying this stuff. This is actual policy and this is what we need to do. And so people would like walk away. I actually handed out my card to a number of people. I, there was a woman who, who worked with the island states in the Caribbean who I'm to this day still got a dialogue with her because she was looking at resilience building in that and she was just walking past. And, and, in, and then it, it moves on. There was a sergeant who was a, who, he was a very nice chap, very smiley. And he kind of realized, I think, that I wasn't one of the sort of crazies, I'd like to think, because he came up to me and went, John, who are you? And I was like, he gave him my card. And said, like, I'm John Grant from Jeffrey Hallam University. And he, and he gave me his card. So we had an exchange of cards, it was all. And he says, you realize at some point we're gonna come piling in and nick all of your stuff that you're blocking the roads. And I was like, yeah, we knew that was coming. And he says, and just call me on this card. And when it becomes available, I'll tell you when you can pick up your stuff. And there was this kind of open dialogue between us. Uh, and and that was kind of nice. And, and, then, and then 
like about 150 police turned up and I'm not kidding, in close formation, five abreast, 20 deep, like a, like a military formation, close, close. It looked like some sort of medieval thing. The marching in, full black body armor, just marching into the front of our thing. And here we are, sort of this amorphous kind of mass of people with a group of scientists, with scientists for Extinction Rebellion at the front, all standing there yelling and saying, who wants a lecture? You know, who wants to know about climate change? And these, these people sort of came in and then fanned out in perfect formation so that they were like 10 deep in front of us. And then the, the sergeant who was talking to me got his tannoy out and went, right, all of you back up. You have to clear this road. We were in front of the Bank of England then, by the way. So they were a bit uncomfortable uh, of, of doing that. And so that everybody needs to back up now. And my colleague, it was one of those moments, you know when somebody's asked to volunteer and everybody steps back and leaves one person in front? Well, because I was in front of the banner, not holding it, I, I didn't realize that all my colleagues actually stepped back quite quickly. <laughs> And, and I was left standing in front of all of these things, looked round and went, oh my goodness. And then this sergeant who was smiling, smiling, turned to me and went, John, because he knew my name by then, you need to get back and unblock the road. So being, I don't know what word, pick a word. It's not a positive word for what sort of person I am in terms of how annoying I can be. I started moving backwards at a snail's pace about half a centimeter step, just a tiny step, tiny step. And he went, John, I told you to move back. And I went, look, I am, but this is the fastest I can do. I'm really sorry, but this is the fast. And it took me a good 10 minutes to back up, but they didn't push me because I was actually doing what they told me to. But damn, was I annoyed, you know? <laughs> and, and he was laughing and I was laughing but this, the, the row of men and women, young, very young police officers behind him, they look quite angry, actually. Like, how dare I sort of take the mic? Why don't you do what we tell you to do? And, and, and so that was a little uncomfortable, which was made even worse later on in the, when I actually started sitting, when we, we tuned the dial up a bit later on in the event, when we started sitting down on the streets. But that's another story. It, it's 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 a fascinating insight into the, into that world, <laughs> that is for sure. Um, but it's it's real, and I, I, that's what I like about it. I, I, you can sense this, you know, how it how it actually is, and I think that's Im important. It was terrifying. Let me tell you, it was absolutely terrifying. Even though I was laughing and smiling inside me, I've never faced off with a police officer before, and I would never do it unless I had all my mates behind me. But yeah, it, it was it was absolutely terrifying. And also, your listeners probably well maybe they get an insight. But I have one of the loudest voices of anybody I've ever met. And so, in, if you know the front of the Bank of England, when we had blocked it, when when ambulances were hammering down between because we were quite close to the the bridge for where they crossed, I got tasked to yell, "Ambulance, make way!" And, and literally, we would, as the ambulance was coming towards us, the whole, the whole event would just split. The ambulance would go flying through and then close again, 
to, to let people and, and my voice is so loud that people it would echo around things but then I actually we saw that there was actually one ambulance driver who was taking taking because obviously it wasn't wasn't particularly busy was just driving through and stopping at one end waiting 10 minutes and then driving through again and stopping at the other end we could see him doing it and then of course the media was there going ah look you're stopping ambulances driving through and that you know I was there to just sort of dial up the tension I think but me and my big booming voice meant that every time the ambulance got to us, it sort of parted and went through. So I was very proud of that. And everybody, so your coherence, your thing, we, we kind of worked as a single body with me sort of booming. I don't need a tannoy. I don't need a tannoy. Always useful to have someone with a loud voice in those <laughs> particular situations. You mentioned the media there. What is the relationship like between protesters, activists and the media? Because it's important to get the right message out rather than, oh, look what these protesters are doing. They're m messing with our lives and being very inconvenient. How do, you, how do you get the message out there that, oh, what you're saying is really important and everyone needs to listen? I'm not sure we did. Mm. I think that's a really good point. I do quite a bit of media work as a, as a scientist and a university lecturer. And honestly, if people don't ask me if I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion, I don't tell them when I'm in the media generally, because I let the actions of my colleagues usually do the talking. So that's why, generally speaking, I don't go onto the line. I try and clarify the reasoning behind people going on the line. But when you're on the line doing something, I'm not sure if that's the best place to, to contact the media. Well, it's my own opinion. Mm. And so, you know, most recently, the uh, Insulate Britain, Things which are not Extinction Rebellion, although I do believe that most people in Insulate Britain are in it, also in Extinction Rebellion. And uh, I remember being invited onto sort of a media show on the TV, and they had a spokesperson from Insulate Britain, and they had me on as the scientist talking about is their new uh, relevant. And you know, and and I started off immediately by saying, you know, it's fifty thousand people a year die through air quality problems. Most, most certainly by um, cars and trucks and, and vehicles on the road. And so, you know, we need to do something immediately. And then it switched to the person interviewed and said, well, clearly you're in, in, in happy about what Extinction Rebellion is doing. And I hadn't said that. I'd just given a statistic that people are dying in their tens of thousands. But, mm -hmm. And it happens to be true. Yes, I am part of Extinction Rebellion. So she was right. So I couldn't turn on her and go, no, I'm not. I don't agree with this. So I just let that sort of lie. And hopefully people heard the statistic, but as we've said already, people don't really care about statistics, but it's kind of all I've got. It would be better if I could maybe talk about a young girl that died of, like the, the girl, the tragic story of the guy with that girl with asthma in London that died, and, and it's been proved that it was the air quality that mm. killed her. It might have been more sensible to say that, but I think that's more for the protester on the line. For me as a scientist, my role is to say, it's real and here's the data, I think, but I might yeah. be wrong. But I think there, uh, I wonder because of our experience of having the COVID pandemic, whether the attachment to science and evidence is more important now for the public. Do you think that that, that has, yeah. you're laughing. You don't think that's- yeah. Sorry, that's, sorry. That's not important. Uh, that's not helped the well, cause. I, I, I see no evidence of that the science pushes the narrative. 
I just don't. I wish it was so. You know, my ego for 25 years was under the firm belief that all I needed to do was to clarify the science sufficiently so that people would hear that data, they would accept that data, and then they would, just like me, change how they live their lives and how they vote, what they push for, and, and, and we would save, save the world. I honestly believe that until sort of five years ago when I realized that no one was listening to the science. That, but what people do listen to is stories and we have to make connections. And so I have been desperately trying to reskill as a storyteller. And, and in part, this is why I love coming onto your podcast because this is about stories. My stories yes. are being on the line talking about these things and how urgent it is and how terrified I am but still doing it maybe we'll make a connection with people more than the last seven years have been the warmest seven years ever recorded since 1750 oh. you know to me that is much more urgent as a message and for me as a scientist that's where I would place my thing but actually listening to to me talking to a girl when I was on the line from Bangladesh who had lost her family in a recent flood and her father had dragged her to one of these survival posts that they build in their villages. I had no idea that they build these, these three, uh, if you could imagine having three um, telegraph poles connected in the middle and then splaying them out at the base and then it splays out at the top and you build a platform on the top splayed three and then you, you nail um, wooden bars around it so you can climb up it. And they have these in the center of their villages during flood season that they build. And her father had dragged her through waist high water and thrown her onto one of these things and then disappeared and she'd never seen him again. Her mother and three sisters, she never saw again, not even in that way. And she was the last surviving person. And, and, and that is happening more often. And a story like that maybe connects with people more about sea level rise and extreme weather events me talking about one degree of, of temperature rise increases the moisture content by five percent which increases the chances of extreme weather event by more than 200 to 500 percent you know we remember that that girl's plight perhaps, yeah which i'm uncomfortable with because it it upsets me even talking about it yeah no i understand that and i think i think both are needed i think that that very upsetting but powerful story that you've just told will stick with people but if they can then attach it to the fact that that has happened because and know a few of the facts then I think those two can be a really strong yeah. thing and you can do I both so. <laughs> yeah yeah um, well that's what I said I'm trying to be a, a storyteller so when people tell yeah, ask yeah. me I start with a story now and then go on to the statistics if people want to know and, and you know that's but it's, it's really hard because I'm a scientist and for me, the most compelling argument is the data. Mm. And it's like, you don't want to hear a story about some poor girls being made an orphan. Why would you want to hear that? You don't want to hear that. Listen to the horror of this data. And it's like, John, no, I'm not interested in that at all. You know, and, and if I, yeah, what, what I'm, yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a real, it's a real challenge of how you change that and, and, and how you, you go face to face with the, the man 
and I say that, you know, is it the political agenda? Because we still have the mantra. You, you listen to the mantra of the world. It is still to continue growing without end. If the world isn't growing 3% every year, then I listen to politicians say that's the end. We, to date, this podcast, you know, there are concerns about oil and gas availability because of the awful situation in Ukraine that's going on at the moment. Um, and, and I listened to Radio 4 this morning and their concern was, will we be able to continue our economic growth as recovery from COVID? That was literally just after, are we going to enter into a global war, potentially? And I was like, oh my God, uh, no. But those two things aren't, well, they are connected, but actually the response of seeing how vulnerable our infrastructure is, is to say, should we not switch to an energy source that isn't in one country or another, rather than something that falls from the sky or blows in the air for free? And, and could we not live in a way where we don't live in fear? I mean, that, that, that to me is the story. And but politicians are still saying we need to double every 23 years, which is 3%, by the way. So a 3% growth is, is doubling everything roughly every three years, 23 years, which is a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it's not an accident that here we are in 2022, we're talking about 2050, because when we reach 2050, if we've continued our 3% growth, everything you see out the window, every amount of energy, emissions, pollution, consumption of raw materials, food, everything will have to have been doubled by 2050. And I wonder if your listeners appreciate what that means because we are on the bleeding edge now. And yet we are talking as a global government out of the United Nations that we need to double everything before we reach 2050 and be zero carbon. <laughs> And you wonder why I laugh. No, I absolutely know why you laugh because of those two statements next to each other and, and, and just diametrically opposed. <laughs> um, so it yes. seems to me. I mean, I do have some crazy ideas that I put to my students that we've got no time for here. That if humanity does not contemplate stabilizing or perish the thought degrowing, you know, shrinking slightly in our most excessive uh, areas of the developed world and allowing the, the developing world to develop somewhat, but, but you know, degrowing our thing. That, that if we don't accept that, if, if the world doesn't accept that, in my mind, and this is really contentious that people will, it might turn them off here, is that my only way to, to allow the planet, the economy to keep growing without burning my planet is to leave the planet not to mars or something <laughs> insane like elon musk the lad's a great lad i've got a lot of time for him in a lot of ways because he's a he's an idealist and a visionary and everything but he's crazy right you can't go to mars and create an infrastructure what you can do is around the, the orbit of our planet and with our moon is create an infrastructure it's theoretically possible that might allow economic growth without heating up our planet because you only need to be 250 to 500 miles above our planet and that those problems are somewhat mitigated and could help solve some of the 
problems on the ground as well. So it's a kind of an extreme one. And it's a it's perhaps a, another podcast of Sounds of like it. <laughs> how, uh, I'm sorry about pimping myself for yet another one in a few months. The orbital infrastructure and the opportunity of saving the planet and continuing everlasting growth on a finite planet is is the only that's the only that's my only solution that I have. I would much prefer for us to live within our means, to, to, to grow renewable energy, to grow people's quality of life and do all of that. But if, if people won't listen to me on that, they will insist on getting richer and, and then the only place you can go without killing everything is, 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 by, is by leaving our planet. And you know, I'm up, I'm up for anybody who come up with a different solution, but I've got it all worked out. I've got it all worked out. Well, hold that thought, John. That is definitely another time. It is, <laughs> but it is. That's a good place to end. I like the fact that let's look after this planet. Otherwise, it's going to be quite blue sky thinking and different. It's extreme. Yeah. What we have in front of us, and that's what activism is. It's an extreme response to an existing problem. And, and you, we don't want, I don't want to be an activist. There are some people out there, I think, quite like being activists, I'm certainly not one of those. I am compelled to be an activist. I'm compelled to force myself to be uncomfortable, scared, vulnerable, because the significance of the change required is not about recycling or using bamboo toothbrushes, which are both great things, but they are not gonna save us. It is something as crazy as restructuring our, our entire economy for us to have a chance. And, and, and activism will hopefully gives us the opportunity to put that narrative, that story out there, that it is an incremental change that's gonna do this. And activists will hopefully show that incremental change isn't the solution, it is step change to, to save us. Yeah, and that that's a, that's equally and a very important message to to leave people with is that activism is like pushing pushing us closer to a solution a whole lot quicker. It's a, it's it's raising our game, and uh, I thank you for being uncomfortable and going out and being part of that. Uh, and sharing your stories this um, this morning uh, on the podcast. It's been excellent, John. Thank you very much. I hope it was engaging. It's a bit weird that, that you'd be interested in such a thing, but, but yes. It certainly fun. was. It was lovely having John back on the podcast and to hear about his thoughts and experiences regarding activism. I was curious to hear he hadn't previously pictured himself as an activist, and activism was something other people did. It was also fascinating to discover the organisation involved in the protest and how people were put together with similar characteristics such as scientists and grannies. History tells us that activism is a catalyst for change, and boy do we need that right now. So I for one am grateful for those who have occupied this space and faced discomfort in the pursuit of change. You can find links to John in the show notes. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for providing the music, and to you, of course, for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to get automatic access to each new episode. And it would be lovely if you could rate, review and share the podcast. It really helps. Until next time, bye for now.